Today on Speaking Out of Place, we talk with Dr. Tim Hewlett, co-founder of the international protest organization, Scientist Rebellion. With more than a thousand members in more than 25 countries, Scientist Rebellion stages nonviolent protests, organizes events and talks, and lobbies other scientists and national leaders to draw attention to the need for immediate and meaningful action with regard to the climate crisis. In today's show, Tim talks about the genesis of Scientist Rebellion, its tactics and strategies, and the blowback the organization is facing from governments seemingly more concerned about the protest than the crisis itself. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Thank you so much for being on the show. I want to get to the most recent news and the updates soon. But first of all, Tim, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in knowing how and why did you start Scientist Rebellion? Largely, it came out of the sense that there's a huge disconnect between what the science has been saying about what we face and the political reality as well as the response from the scientific community. And I think a large amount of naivety about the role of the scientific community in the crisis. And I don't mean that in a positive way entirely. So we started it by doing an action at the Royal Society in London which is one of the oldest, perhaps the oldest institution of science in the world, very prestigious. And yet they don't really have any kind of noticeable plan about climate breakdown. They don't challenge the realities which are driving us to the point of annihilation. And so we thought that was a good place to start. If even institutions which purport to be the biggest purveyors of truth can't tell the truth about this, then what hope have we? Has the size of the group and its reach surprised you? It seems to have grown exponentially. Certainly when we started out, we didn't know what the reception would be. Obviously we hoped that other people would quietly feeling as we were feeling uh, and that they would be inspired to join and to try and make that political difference. But there were points where our numbers exploded and that was amazing to see and very surprising. I think the more pernicious aspect is the way that science as a set of institutions fits into a paradigm which is doomed from the outset. Now, for instance, if you look at the framing of the science within the IPCC reports and how that informs the construction of policy related to the climate around the globe, well, it's foundationally dishonest. If you frame an entire report around the need to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees and all of the efforts that societies are going to make to do that, and you omit from the public discussion the fact that we have basically no chance whatsoever of achieving those goals. There's a really commonly uh, used measure within climate science called the equilibrium climate sensitivity, which says basically how much heating you expect per doubling of greenhouse gas and concentrations in the atmosphere. And there's lots of different lines of reasoning and evidence that go into that's a really robust metric. And that suggests that if you double the greenhouse gas concentration, you should get at least two and a half, probably closer to five degrees of heating. And that's without even considering the effect that we're having on ecosystems, on the carbon sink of the world as well. So we're double impacting the world. Roughly speaking, we've already doubled the greenhouse gas concentration. So in what scientific world is it reason to construct your arguments around a fantasy like 1.5 degrees? So it's a kind of more pernicious aspect of it that allows corporations, fossil fuel industries, government 
to keep on polluting in the idea that the scientific community is saying, yeah, we can still reach these goals. Right. Do you know the climate activist Adam Aaron, who's in San Diego, and he's a psychologist, and then he became very interested in climate crisis. And now this is his full-time job, as it were. And I talked to him a lot about the psychology behind this, right? So you have governments framing certain things in certain ways, but then you have the general public that seems psychologically so willing to accept this framing. And so how do you try to reframe it or break the frame and substitute something else? Tell us a little bit how you arrived at the kinds of protests and tactics that your group is advocating and enacting. Great question. It's a really difficult issue because it gets to the heart of so much of what it is to be human, apart from anything else. We want to believe that there is hope. We want to believe people when they say that they're on our side and they're acting in our interests. And so we, we have a tendency to turn a blind eye if it's easier than the alternative. One of the ways that you can try to disrupt that relationship is through direct action. If you see senior people like academics, like scientists who are quite privileged, they don't need to be going out directly and defending their lives in the way that some protesters perhaps do. It has an additional kind of psychological effect, I think, where they say, wow, if even these people are on the streets, then things must be serious and must be something I don't get about this. So that's one of the ways that you can start to break through. But I don't think that there is just one approach or one way of doing this. And so one of the things that we tried to do when we set up Scientist Rebellion was to instill a culture and a set of systems that would mean that anybody who was affiliated with the group would be supported in any non-violent approach that they took to basically make the point that almost anything is justified in response to this. If you're trying to do good, I'm not going to quibble with you over the tactics because I don't know everything. And there are deep cultural issues that have to be confronted. And, you know, I'm an astrophysicist by trade. I can't mm. tell you the best way to impact culture. Yeah. The best I can do is just tell the truth as I see it and live consistently with that truth as an example as to what it means. I think that that's absolutely brilliant and rational <laughs> because people are so different. And when I did the interview with Jennifer Jacquet, she said, I gave birth to my first child on the day that Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Accords. And she said, many people, when they're depressed, become morose. I just get angry. And, <laughs> yeah. and there was a recent article in The Guardian, right? This came out, just, I think, a couple of days ago, saying anger is actually the most effective whatever. And you'd like to believe that there's a silver bullet, but there's not. Because I also think about, and I'm sure you know Peter Kalmus, and when oh. he and I talk in that video that he did, I think in front of Chase Manhattan Bank or something, one of the actions, and he just starts crying. He says, I have children. I think you're exactly right. So many people have different kinds of registers and ways of reacting that if you try to make it too doctrinaire and too easy and uniform, then you're going to miss a lot of people. And I know that Michael Mann, for example, who I respect greatly, also is anti-throwing the soup on with the paintings. But on the other hand, it gets attention as among some people. And I think you're exactly right that no matter what, it signals the immensity of the problem, that it's having this kind of emotional effect that's creating all these different kinds of reactions. We could try and delve into the psychology of the kind of Michael Manns of the world. And I suspect that what's going on there is that they need to believe in some institution. They need to believe that there is some part of the establishment which is on their side and which can be appealed to rationally and reasonably. When we started out, actually, we were somewhat attacked by Michael Mann because he called us doomers. He said that you're spreading despair 
that's antithetical to action. And, and at our point, I feel despaired and it's yeah. not stopping me from taking action. People are complex. People are diverse. Now, again, we probably need both. We probably need some people who are there trying to take an optimistic, positive perspective mm -hmm. on all this. And we need people who are there who are saying, no, you're not crazy. This is, everything is breaking down before your eyes. And you need to understand the reality of what is going on if you're going to have any hope of responding to it in a rational, reasonable way. Absolutely. And for somebody like Michael Mann, who's been so viciously attacked hmm. by the right wing and discredited through all these devious media campaigns, that one would develop a kind of media savvy. One of the actions that I listened to him give was with regard to the art protest. He said, people don't read until like four paragraphs down that was just a piece of glass over it and all they fixated on is the beginning. I said, but that's what's called clickbait. That's what gets people into the moment. And if you just led with, well, it's about climate change, they're not going to necessarily look at it. In this heavily mediated world, we need a plethora of approaches that will stick in one way or the other. Let's talk about what's happening these days. Apparently, there are 100 open cases against climate protests. Could you talk a little bit about the most recent, I think it was in February, where you and Michael were exonerated. But tell us a little bit about that case and what you see as the reaction of governments, not just in the UK, but elsewhere, to what you all are doing. Yeah, thank you. I believe in the UK there have been over a hundred cases in the last year, many of them ending in jail. And that's a massive escalation on recent history. And yet we had one in February that was actually dating back to the founding action at the Royal Society, what we were being tried for there. And yeah, very nice to say that we were exonerated, we did win that case. But I think all around the world, what we're seeing is a convergence of institutions of power to try to shut out truth-tellers, to try to shut out activists and people who would hold those powerful actors to account. I suspect it's because they recognize that they are committing heinous crimes. And if there were to be true accountability, they would be the ones being prosecuted. Exactly. And so That's they true. have to undermine those. Yes who call that out, they have to delegitimize them in any way they can. In the UK, for example, within the last year and a half now, we've seen top-down directives from the government which are blocking activists and people in court from making legal arguments. In our case, for instance, we weren't allowed to refer to human rights legislation. We weren't allowed to argue the defense of necessity, that we're trying to avoid greater harm. These are long-established principles in case law, but you're not allowed to make those arguments anymore because activists kept on winning, and that's extremely inconvenient to mm. the government. So the government dictates they shouldn't be able to do that. And that's not something that's meant to happen in a separation of powers. So we're seeing this convergence, this coalescence of these institutions to try to protect the powerful and to protect the status quo, despite the fact that that status quo inevitably leads to the breakdown of society. If you have an exponentially growing economy, you have exponential growth in energy and resource consumption use, then they point beyond which you cannot return. We may already have crossed that point. The compounding effects of all of that means that the people who are protecting themselves now must understand it's a very short-term game they're playing. Their kids aren't going to benefit from it. Yes, this is what always baffles me is that you think you know the basis of human nature is self-interest, and you would think that would kick in with these folks, especially when you talk about children. I had two follow-up questions for you about the court cases. One is, you talked about how governments are clamping down. How about employers? I mean, your employers, for example, because when I talked to Peter, he's saying, well, I've been arrested four times. I'm not sure how many more times NASA is going to let this happen. And the other thing that I'm sure our audience would be really interested in knowing is, on what grounds were you found not guilty? I think that's a very interesting point. 
I'll start with the second question and say the only legal defense that was available to us was the argument of consent, which is kind of a strange one, but it means that you can argue that you really believe that the people you were acting against would have consented if they were in receipt of all the facts, then it is a legal action to do. So it's kind of an interesting one with an institution of science to say, you just yeah. don't get it, guys. Come on. If you understood why we were doing this, and if you understood that actually academics, scientists have a lot of political power if we are willing to exercise it in new radical ways. Mm -hmm. If you could recognize that, then you wouldn't object to this because we're trying to save life. We're not trying to be disruptive. We're not trying to be bad in any way. It would be wonderful to have a transcript of the arguments because it's such a remarkable argument to make. To the first part of your question, certainly there are increasingly scientists who are members of Scientist Rebellion have been fired or they've been reprimanded because of their actions. But it doesn't actually always go that, you know, there are people within academia who are very sympathetic to this, who can see the way the wind blowing and who are scared. And so there are people within these institutions who actually are supported and do want to create a space where people are free to take such activities. But, you know, a university is a very conservative institution at the end of the day. And so if you start pushing up against the bottom line of an institution which needs to protect its funding sources often comes from fossil fuels. It's often a close relationship there. Then, yeah, that, there can be personal ramifications, absolutely. But that is part of the political theory, that if mm. you are willing to accept personal sacrifice, it proves that you're telling the truth, in a sense. People believe you because you're not acting in self-interest in a clear, obvious way, right? right. Especially in such numbers, which is oh. really impressive. Uh, could you talk a little about the internationalization of Scientist Rebellion? How did that come about? Because it's one thing to do it within you know, a nation, state or whatever, but hmm. to have it resonate so broadly, how did that come about? And what kinds of energy does that give you? Yeah, great question. We tried our best to make it very international from the very beginning, because if you become big in one country and then you try to spread, it's understood to be a thing within that country. And so it's always going to be weaker elsewhere and you're not going to get a kind of democratic outcome. We try to reach out to academics all around the world in all sorts of different countries and places and see if they would be willing to support us and to do any kind of activism alongside us. That was relatively successful, actually. I mean, the UK isn't the biggest hotspot of science rebellion. And as I alluded to earlier, the way we set up the practices or structures of Scientist Rebellion were designed in order to empower people locally to make choices and decisions mm -hmm. and design their own actions and then pull those resources, pull those ideas. Because again, in Britain, cannot properly tell somebody in, say, an African right. country or somewhere in the States, even. I can't tell you what is going to be most effective. I can give you a bunch of ideas and I can say, I will support you in whatever you do. Let's work together. Yes. But it's not for me to tell you how to respond to this. And I think giving that freedom, giving that power to individuals wherever they were was pretty important in laying down the foundations for that international solidarity and that democratic process. What kinds of things have you learned since the inception of Scientist Rebellion? And what you just said is part of that learning process, I guess. But what other kinds of things have you learned that you might share with others? I think that I have a deepened appreciation of the role of institutions of science, certainly, in constructing narratives and an appreciation for just how important that is. I mean, I knew it was important, but it's hard for me now to imagine how the propaganda around climate breakdown could survive in the absence of the consent of the scientific community. 
And so as we've gone up, I've put more of my effort directly into the scientific community to try to challenge itself. It, it, initially, I think the goal was we want to appeal to the public to say, look, this is how scared we are. This is how real this is. Come and join us. We don't want this just to be an institution, just to be an organization made up of academics. We want it to be an integrated organization within society at large. Mm. And that didn't really happen. <laughs> now I see that, that internal struggle as being actually more significant than I want to give them weight to. Also, I think I had a somewhat naive view as to how one should respond, but which was too deeply rooted in my own emotions, my own experiences. I think I have a more enlightened perspective now. <laughs> I suppose that I feel a sense of despair often. And I once thought that if people recognize that same sense of despair, it would liberate them to act in the interests of others in a selfless way. Because if you recognize that your life as you imagined it is gone, then it creates a vacuum that has to be filled by something. And I'm less confident in the simplicity of that process now, I suppose. There's been a, a personal journey there, which has been quite complex. That's so beautifully put. I appreciate it because a lot of people I talk to articulate similar kinds of things that it goes back to something you said a moment ago about narratives. And I'm a literary scholar, so I'm very into narratives. And we all grow up in our lives. We're raised as children and we have a normal set of narratives. And then we try to loop in new phenomena into that narrative and see how capacious the narrative is. And then when you get to a situation like this, which is absolutely unprecedented, those old narratives don't work anymore. And so you are left with a kind of vacuum and one hopes that others will contribute to filling it in their own way. And I think some of the strategies and tactics that you talked about in terms of entertaining different approaches is in the right direction. I want to ask you, how can we support you? I think, you know, what you just said about it being more than just scientists, I think so many people would like to support you. How can we support you the best? And there must be a number of ways, of course, financially, but other ways that lay people can help you all. Well, thank you for that. There are the first and most simple thing people could do is go to the website and see what's going on there, see what all the options are about. I think a couple of years ago, I would have said quite simply, the best thing you can do is to take action. The, the best way to support is to get involved. I won't be so dogmatic now, <laughs> but I think that without confronting those narratives that we've been speaking about, I don't see a way of progressing as a society and as a culture. So the most important thing on one level is education and information. And so fiercely being able to talk to people about the realities that we face and its causes underlying it, even if that leaves a vacuum of meaning, don't shy away from that vacuum. It has to be embraced because it's coming one way or the other. So I think that in many respects, the best way that you can support is just by trying to educate each other. Mm. Mm. And that gets me to my last question. It's more of a comment than a question, but I'd love to have your thoughts. And so it was last year that Stanford got one of the largest donations. In fact, it might have been the largest donation in its history to start a school for sustainability. It's called the Doors School. It got $1.2 or something. And one of the first things that the new dean announced when it became public was that we were happy to take money from anybody who wanted to help including fossil fuel companies. And that bait the question was if fossil fuel companies really want to help or what is going on there. And immediately a protest began and grew and grew and grew and became more and more organized by graduate students because they were the people that felt exactly that education was so important. They had committed their futures to this enterprise and now they felt betrayed 
that there was something fishy going on, that nobody was smelling the stench. This, so after the protests, the university said, well, we'll set up a commission. You know, the usual response of institutions wow. set up a commission that will take X number of years to finish. But I talked to many of the graduate students and they say, it's really interesting going to my advisor. And they will say, I applaud your courage and your commitment to social justice, but you have to segment that part of your life away from finishing your degree. It's just going to get in the way. And this creates such a cognitive dissonance in their minds, but their hearts as well. I mean, why would they go into this training in the first place if not to help the world? And now they're talking, but there are good ways of helping and bad ways of helping, and here's the division. So I guess it's more of a comment than a question to you. I really want to express the gratitude of so many people, and especially young people entering the field, because without you, they would feel that dissonance even more radically. So having your organization there as a vibrant and growing and loud declaration that, no, thousands and thousands of other scientists are feeling the same way and that they are not doomed if they enter the profession to take that one fork in the... I think that's so important and essential and expanding it even further to the public. You all are giving us an alternative to, again, as you said, the normal scientific community, accepting the framing, going along with these, frankly, surreal kinds of declarations about, well, if we adjust this data point to that, it just boggles the mind when you see the empirical evidence before us. I mean, the fires in Maui, the fires in Canada and polluting the air, and there are no boundaries. There's no containment to this. And that we all want to be optimistic, but there are many tipping points that we are quickly approaching, if not having surpassed. I guess I'd just respond to that by saying thank you to those graduate students for acting and for having the courage, as their supervisors put it, because you never know who your courage might touch. You never know what ripples you're sending out into the world and what effect it might have. And often in this world, it feels like you're achieving nothing. You're just bashing your head against a brick wall you generally don't see the fruits of your labor. And that can be hard, but bear that in mind. Try anyway. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, David. Amazing. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview. 